Welcome back, everybody, everyone who is listening, everyone who is listening either for the first time or is jumping in whenever uh, works for them. This is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. I'm Sean, and I have a guest for you today is uh, Lillian Easterly-Smith. She's a counselor, fitness instructor, recovering addict, lifestyle coach, and the founder of the Aruka Ranch which is a ranch that's devoted entirely to helping people through addictions and helping them recover and helping them maintain their recovery. That's a big emphasis I've noticed. And she's going to talk to us today about all things having to do with addiction and recovery. Lillian, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. So... Let's start with an early context here, because obviously I think if you work with addicts, then it probably goes without saying that you are one yourself. It's pretty well known that recovering addicts work with other recovering addicts as the support system. It's the most appropriate kind of support system you can ask for because it's someone who's gone through the road that you're going through now. And... So let's get some let's get some uh, background on you. Like, okay. where did you come in? Where did you come into? Um, well, event one day eventually founding the Aruka Ranch. Yeah, well, actually, I'm a person that's in long term recovery. My drug of choice was alcohol, and at the end of my addiction, really, I started dabbling back into drugs as well in combination with the alcohol. Um, started drinking and using drugs in my teenage years, probably around 14 or so. Um, But what we're seeing today, uh, the drugs that are available to people, what we're seeing today is that the statistic of relapse and uh, the losses are significant. In fact, when we moved here to Southwest Florida a little over five years ago, At that point in time, the stat that I heard in this area alone, that the drug overdoses and death related to drug overdoses had increased by 300%. That's disturbing. So with my own journey, and then also my husband is also has a long-term recovery. Alcohol was his drug of choice as well. Uh, we've been working with addicts um, for all these years. And as we have progressed in our own healing and then actually helping other people find recovery, there was a connection that we were making with the physical aspect because what you predominantly see out there in the recovery world is, okay, let's get them off of drugs and alcohol, but then let's put them on pharmaceuticals. and it's not working. Uh, we're, we're seeing the uh, statistic of relapse is it's growing instead of lessening. And so because of our own personal journey and then learning about, you know, health and fitness and how, and you know, as well as I do, that exercise is the best antidepressant and anti-anxiety that you can do. But the majority of people in America overall are sedentary. So that's a key component. And then, you know, nutrition. So we started actually pursuing our credentials in nutrition as well as the fitness piece. And what we started finding was when we could get people 
to embrace this holistic approach to recovery, there was greater success. So that was true of our own health and well-being, you know, as we, you know, implemented some changes ourselves over the last, I want to say, 16, 17 years, we started our health journey. Um, it was like, wow, this is this is like night and day and just feeling well, having energy, having clarity of thought. Um, and so we started incorporating some of this with the people that we were counseling and coaching. And it was like, wow, okay, this is it. So we need to have a place now instead of people going the medical model route. And not that I'm totally anti-medication. I understand that sometimes there is value to that. And there is, you know, that's the way that you have to go, especially with some of the mental illness that we're seeing or dual diagnosis. Okay, we have addiction and bipolar and schizophrenia and all these different things going on simultaneous. So sometimes I think that's okay, let's go the medical model, but let's use that as a temporary thing. And let's see if we can get people off of the medications and more, you know, treating them holistically, body, soul, spirit. So that's why we wanted to see the ranch so that people can come to this ranch. And what we're, what we're saying with the ranch is it is root cause recovery. So root cause recovery. Let's go after the root. So that could potentially be thoughts. It could be emotional health and well-being, or it could also be, wow, they've got a lot of trauma in their life, and so their brain isn't even functioning well. So let's see if we can use some more natural alternative modalities to give them brain health while we're working towards the nutrition and the fitness piece while we're giving them counseling. Does that make sense? Doesn't that all make sense to you that there would be greater success in doing it that way. So that's who we are and that's what we're about. What was it that got you into the, the addiction so early in life around 14, 15? I think that's probably around the time that most people start dabbling in these illicit activities. I know that's around the time that I started getting into it is when you start introduce, getting introduced to you know, beer and cigarettes and, you know, all kinds of other drugs, just because they're, you know, let's be honest, they're easy enough to get a hold of. I mean, all you got to do, if you want to start dabbling in booze, all you got to do is just kind of steal something from your parents' cabinet and there it be. Um, so what was the, uh, what was the jumping off point for you? Well, uh, one of the things that I tell people on a regular basis is that we all come from dysfunctional family systems. Most families are not functioning in a very healthy way. So I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. And like you were saying, all you have to do is just go into the cabinet and just help yourself to the alcohol. Well, my family of origin, alcohol is rampant. Alcoholism is rampant. I have lost multiple family members to alcohol. So growing up in the family system that was broken caused me to start looking elsewhere for my emotional needs to be met. And so what we find is most people, teenagers or younger than that, they have this longing and desire to fit in. So you want to fit in, 
you want to feel accepted. Um, you know, if you've dealt with rejection in your family of origin, then obviously you're going to gravitate towards those who are more accepting. So that's part of what happened with me. And it wasn't so much, you know, and I know that there's been a lot of talk about, you know, peer pressure, and that's what causes people to, to get involved in drugs and alcohol. And yeah, okay, it was my peers, but it wasn't pressure from my peers. It was this longing to be accepted and to be a part of a group where I felt like I fit in because I really didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And so when I started, you know, the smoking, the drugs, the alcohol, all that, it was like, oh, okay, I have this group of friends. Um, and then I also think part of what happened with me, and I think it's true of a lot of people, is like once you use, um, it's enticing uh, because it feels good. So whether, whether it is that you're seeking this feeling of pleasure, or you use something and all of a sudden the anxiety is gone. All the cares of the world are gone. You can just numb out and forget about everything. So whatever's going on at home, whatever's going on in your relationships, it's not working right. You can use something and then everything just calms down and that feels good. So that's kind of what happened to me. And um, you would think, you know, for me personally, uh, the first thing that I was introduced to was uh, psychedelics. I mean, I had an acid trip and it was absolutely horrible. Now, you would think I would learn my lesson and think, yeah, yeah, I want to stay away from that. No, of course not. Let's try this and this and this and this. Right. So I experimented with all these different drugs and then combining the alcohol with all of that. And eventually I was like, OK. Just landed on the alcohol and just stuck with that, smoked some pot, you know, along with it. And yeah, so my journey was definitely, you know, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to run from the dysfunction that was going on at home, uh, the emotional and verbal abuse that was happening there. Wanted to numb out and escape. Yeah, I think the the peer pressure the peer pressure thing is kind of over overstated and overused. Um, I don't think peer pressure really plays that much of a part of addictions. Honestly, I think peer pressure is just it wouldn't work if there wasn't already a set stage for it. You know, because um, people who come from a strong background where they have a strong constitution against like using drugs or drinking or anything like that and they come from a warm and loving background um they feel secure in their world and the world in which they come from it's only when they look for something that they don't have and like you said you said this repeatedly you're looking for acceptance well you found acceptance there i kind of found the same thing myself too with these you know these little dabbles into these little naughty things that you're not supposed to do i mean i bounced around from one thing to another, one click to another, I guess you can say, and didn't really feel like I really belonged to any of them. And this was an easy way to get accepted. All I got to do is just kind of <laughs> do these uh, substances. And that make, that's your, that's your, that's your entry. That's your low, low barrier entry into this click. However, you know, however, uh, 
I guess, seedy or un, undesirable it might be, I guess. I don't know. You kind of fancy being an outcast in some way, but that was kind of my experience with it. So I, I think the peer pressure thing is kind of thrown out there way too much. Yeah, I agree with you. And isn't it fascinating that um, all the generations, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously I'm much older than you. And here it's the same. It was the same for you as it was for me. So it's the same kind of thing. Looking for that place to fit in and feeling like you're, you know, you don't fit anywhere. And and that's that's pretty sad to think that, yeah, okay, if I choose to go this route, now these emotional needs are going to be met because we all have emotional needs. And I teach yeah. that all the time. And it's really okay that you have them. Where we get tripped up and messed up is because we take matters into our own hands without even realizing it, trying to make sure that those needs get met. And we look in the wrong places. So, you know, the acceptance approval, affirmation, affection. Those are just four A's of our emotional needs. And boy, if we can find them in a group of people that are doing all the wrong things, we're going to gravitate to that, unfortunately. So when did you, uh, when did you find your uh, sobriety? When was that? Was there a singular moment of clarity or was it just kind of like a, a series of gradual steps over years? Well, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mentioned that, you know, I come from a, a family that's riddled with addiction. Um, my father, because my mom finally uh, took a step and removed herself from his addiction and left him with my two younger sisters, I was already gone. I left before I even graduated from high school. I left. Um, but she left him. And as a result of that, he got sober and in recovery. It's a miracle that he even lived through that because he did it all on his own. He never went, he never was hospitalized and went through grand mal seizures and all kinds of horrendous stuff. But because of his sobriety and he, he modeled sobriety in front of us, um, that started getting my attention. And I started really questioning, you know, my own alcohol use. And it's interesting because I got to the point in my addiction where I was hurting a lot of people around me and I was doing some things like I never thought I would ever do. You know, everything goes down the toilet, basically your values, morality, all of it. And so I was doing a lot of horrible stuff. And when I looked in the mirror, I hated what I saw. And it was through a suicide attempt. And through that, I, I, really, I, I really had a God experience where what I heard was, you don't want to die. You just don't want to hurt anymore. And I thought of my dad and was like, I need to talk to him. And not long after that, that's when I finally faced myself and faced the reality that I too had an addiction. And so then I started pursuing recovery. And how long was your recovery? Well, I never did anything as far as like going into detox or any of that. I just stopped. And 
What I learned after starting to go to 12-step meetings, um, my first few meetings, it was like I could just, I just sat there and cried. And I was not a crier, okay? The only time I really expressed emotion was, was when I was under the influence. And I sat there for probably months before even being able to say my name. But one of the things that I heard at one of the first meetings I attended, after they had heard a little bit of my story, was they said, well, the, the one guy that was actually leading the meeting, it was a mixed group. And he said, oh, okay, I think I get where you're at and what you're saying. He said, you're on the garbage truck. And either you can take it to the dump, all the way to the dump, or you can get off now. And it was like, ding, 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 that was it. Because I hadn't crossed the line yet where I was physically addicted. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was drinking a lot all week long, you know, even during the week. It's like you find an excuse and, and every night it was like going out to the happy hour and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it was like, yeah, you, you have a problem. Either you can stop now or you can just keep going. It's up to you. And then I thought about my dad, you know? So again, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm getting off now. So that really, that really gripped me. And I was like, okay, I want this and I don't want that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. How big of a role does trauma play in addiction? Is it, is it, is it everything that's an addiction? Actually, here's, here's what I know to be a fact. Okay. There's two types of trauma. Mm -hmm. One is bad things happen to us. And there isn't a person in this world that hasn't had bad things happen to them. We get, have disappointments, heartache rejection, you name it, right? And that can be traumatic, especially if you're not in a healthy environment to process that information or if it's coming directly from those who are supposed to provide just the opposite of that, right? The nurture, the encouragement. So mm -hmm. that's one kind of trauma. The kind that doesn't get talked about much is trauma that results from the absence of good things. Sorry. Okay. So the absence of good things, if that happens early on in life, then you're walking into adulthood crippled, basically. So trauma plays a huge part in addiction, and it plays a huge part in really people getting genuine recovery, which is why we say we're root cause recovery. We have to dig in and look at the trauma and heal from the trauma so that we're not switching addictions or we're going to go back into relapse. So I just came from a, a conference um, last month. I went to a very large conference for counselors. And now they're saying that over 80% of the people within the, their first several months of recovery, they relapse. Why? Because you have to get them to the point where it's like, okay, now I'm clean, but now I have to go deep. I have to go after those roots. And if I don't, yeah, I'm just going to keep relapsing. 
So it's kind of like, do you have dandelions in Iowa? Yeah. That's the analogy I use. So typical recovery is you just keep mowing over the dandelions, just cutting, mm. cutting off the top, right? How right. do you get rid of a dandelion? You have to dig out the root, right? Somehow that root has to be killed. That has to be taken care of. And so, yeah, trauma is huge. And so we try to help people go through their trauma, make sense of it as best you can. And the things that don't make any sense, because some things we're never going to understand, you have to learn how to let go, right? You have to learn how to forgive from your heart. And so we teach people how to do that. So, okay. So this question I have, cause I, I do like to, I like to throw out some sort of devil's advocate questions there because I know it's out there. And I know that, you know, people hear questions like this, they, cause you know, we, we have a, I think a much firmer understanding of addiction and how addictions play and how it actually is a mental health crisis um, rather more or is a public health crisis and rather more in just kind of like a, um, a case of low character and low morality, um, which, but I think that kind of that attitude does uh, pervade a lot of times in a lot of States. I know Iowa is pretty, pretty uh, piss poor in terms of its mental health. Um, uh, uh, functions, I guess I should say that mental mental health pro, uh, provider care, that kind of thing. Um, so, is is addiction really just a matter of choices when it really starts out? At least, because you know you go into you go into something that you know full well that it could be addicting. You know it can it can really uh, uh, be wrapped of your life. And it can just throw everything into a complete tailspin. But yet you do this anyway. Um, we know it's not as simple as that. Or do we know it's not as simple as that? Maybe that's a better question for you. Yeah, it is not as simple as that. And I think there's there's two things with that. One is, I think a lot of times when you start dabbling in drugs or alcohol, you really think you're going to be okay. It's not like you're intentionally choosing something that you know is going to end in, land you in the gutter. You don't. You really think you're going to be different than everybody else that you've mm-hmm. seen around you. I can handle this. You know, you convince yourself of that. The other thing is, I think that a lot of people that start dabbling in drugs in particular, because those are definitely way more dangerous, even though alcohol is dangerous the longer that you consume it. But obviously, you know, let's talk about fentanyl. You know, you could do fentanyl once and you're just done. You know, it's over. It could kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the other part of it is you don't care. And a person that doesn't care if they live or die that person that doesn't care, I mean, how could you not have compassion on someone that's choosing this over living? Why would someone be at that point in their life? And mostly, and it's usually teenagers, right? That's kind of where the whole thing starts. Why can't you have a heart towards that instead of, well, you're just choosing it, you know, and you just made one bad choice after the other. Let's go back 
to when they first started? And why would you choose that? And if you really don't care one way or the other, whether you live or die, that should grip your heart. And, and you should want to help an individual that has that kind of, whether it's, you know, self-loathing or just a happenstance kind of attitude about their life overall. It's like that, that's sad. That should grip us with compassion. Help me understand. Help me, um, you know, get into your head and your heart so that I can help you to want to live, to help you see that ultimately you can have purpose and meaning. You know, my husband just connected with a, a group of guys and, um, the guy that actually put this curriculum together, he said, when addicts come to me, he said, I don't focus on the addiction as much as I want to focus on. Let me help you figure out what your purpose is. Hmm. Mm. I think he's onto something because if you know that your life has purpose and that there's meaning for your existence, then aren't you going to want to make some changes, some positive changes? And isn't that true? I mean, you're in the fitness arena, just like I am. Isn't this also true for those that we can't seem to get? Oh, don't you get it? You need to change what you're eating. You need to exercise. Okay. Um, if they don't understand that their life has value and purpose and meaning, they're never going to change. So I think we have to start there. And yeah, let's have compassion for a person that would choose to do this and keep choosing to do this, knowing the possibility that it could destroy their life. Okay, that should grip me. And I should, I should want to come alongside them and try to help them instead of point fingers. Well, you know what? You made your bed lying in it, whatever, you know. And like you said, looking down on them mm. instead of walking with them. Is that what you found um, when you and your husband moved to Florida there and where you're living? It's like, because you, you uh, mentioned like a 300% increase in, was it relapse, recovery relapses? In the death. 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 Okay. Okay. Because so, of I, overdose. Death. Right. So, yeah. And I think like. People, I three hundred percent is an enormous figure. I mean, you you conjure up images of like bodies in the street or something like that. It's just it just sounds like outright genocide almost. Um, and it's it's significant too because I, I, my understanding is like when you when you have gone off of the substance, right, and you're off it for a period of time, and then you relapse and you go right back into it, and you try going right back to the level that you were at when you quit which your level of resistance has been diminished. I mean, that could kill you right there. That's what a lot of times what kills, a, a, you know, a, a, an addict who has fallen off the wagon. It's like they thought that they, their tolerance was as high as it was. And no, it was not. Um, so is that what you found right there? Is that you, you had this, you came into this area here with a 300% increase in death. And there was just no, no thought given to it. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, and the fentanyl, that's, that's the big one. That seems to be the drug that's mm. taking people out. And what I'm finding, in fact, um, 
you know, there's probably not a week or two that goes by that I don't hear of another death of someone that I know that I'm personally helping in a sober living environment, a friend of theirs, a family member, a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're finding is they're putting fentanyl in heroin. They're, they're putting it in all the other drugs. And some of these people don't even know that it's in there. And they use it. And now they're hooked or they use it. And that's their last high, so to speak, because it takes them out. It is so, it's deadly, deadly. So I think that's part of the increase is because uh, the drugs that are being used are, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're definitely more deadly. And I, and I think that, you know, most addicts, you know, they know they're playing Russian roulette and yet it is so enticing and they're so driven for that next high that they take the risk Yeah, and then they're gone. How much of a role do you think politics plays in all of this? I don't generally bring up politics very much because yeah. one, I don't, I don't find that it's very relevant to a lot of stuff we speak of. But when we're talking about anything having to do with drugs or any kind of substance that people use, it's always politicized. So I can't think that, you know, having a conversation about this in any honest way is gonna avoid the political angles or avoid the political implications. Um, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking right now of fentanyl, and I have heard a lot about it, and I've had run-ins with it too, just because of what I, how, what I do for a living. Um, I'm thinking about it, it seems comparable to what like the crack cocaine epidemic was in the 1980s. And it seems like people's reaction to it a lot of times is kind of similar, what I'm hearing. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a low rent, you know, drug that's used by people who live in the gutter or live in ghettos or slums or whatever you want to call it, lower income people, poor people, essentially. And, and so it's not, there's not much real consideration given to it. It's kind of, people seem like, well, if we can't, you can't get rid of it, but we can at least shut ourselves off to it. If we keep it within these certain areas here and it doesn't kind of bleed over into everything else, then we're not so scared of it. Until the moment it shows up in <laughs> suburban upper-class America, then that's when we get scared. Um, is that is that kind of how you see the uh, the fentanyl epidemic? I it, yeah, I think it probably started out being that, and now it really is infiltrating every aspect of American life uh, because um, it's no respecter of persons, right? Whether that's cultural or socioeconomic, um, we're finding more and more people. Um, I mean, if you think about it, probably your more upper class people, okay, they're snorting cocaine and drinking booze. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So now let's put some fentanyl in the cocaine. Now we have more customers, you know. Um, and then back to the, the po political side of things, I think that if you're in a state that is actually trying to fight this war, um, I think those of us that are on the front lines are going to get better support 
Now, our state here, they're very much aware and, I mean, they are involved also with the mental health piece, which is great. Um, so it's a good place for us to be right now in trying to do this. The only downside is it's still the medical model that seems to be the go-to. Right. And so we're trying to change that. You know, we really, um, so the more we can help people holistically and we start seeing statistics that begin to reverse and change those relapse rates, maybe there will be greater support overall. That That's my hope. And then, you know, open borders, that's an issue. We know that fentanyl is coming across our, our borders like crazy, mm -hmm. you know. I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yeah. Statistically, they're, they're, yeah, it's, it's huge, huge. Do, do they know where from origin was, or is it just, just like coming across the border? Um, I'm sure that they, they are uh, catching some of them that are actually doing this, and which is part of how, you know, you have individuals that are telling on others. <laughs> so right. that's how they're getting more of their information. Um, I couldn't tell you like the exact locations of right. uh, where it's predominant, but I try to, um, you know, seek sources where I can get accurate information about some of those things. And uh, yeah, it's, it's prevalent and it's, it's not good. And so I know the, uh... our governor is very much aware of that. So he's put up, you know, he's, he's been trying to do some protective things overall, you know, for our state in particular. So at the uh, Aruka Ranch, so first of all, tell us what Aruka means. Okay. Now, I, I do want to let you know this. Um, we have been doing, uh, you know, helping addicts and also people with their, um, with trauma and all of that for many years. Okay. Um, but the ranch is still in the visionary state. Okay. 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 We've looked at property. Uh, we have investors that are considering investing in this project because they see the need. Um, so Aruka means coming into wholeness, body, soul, spirit. It's about healing, rebuilding, restoring. And we take a whole person approach. So the body piece, we want people to be able to come to the ranch, learn how to eat nutritionally, grow new great organic food. We also believe in animal therapy and having animals on the property. Um, more so for them to have that connection, especially if there's trauma bonds or there's a lack of attachment in their growing up years. Going back to your our discussion about trauma and how that can actually bring healing. Um, we will have the lifestyle coaching. Supplements are huge. And then we have some people that are willing to come on board with this that are in the alternative health space that mm -hmm. utilize modalities that can actually help with brain health. See, I, I think that's another thing too, is like if your brain has is coming from trauma or 
you have been using substances for years, your brain is not functioning well. So for us to just say, sit down in the chair in front of me and let's just do typical talk therapy, you're not going to get as far as you could if you start training the brain. So there's a, a doctor that I follow, Dr. Um, Amen, and he, he does brain mapping. And not that we can afford doing brain mapping, but we do know that if a person comes to us and they're presenting these historical things that they've done or they've experienced, we know that there are certain modalities that are going to work for them. We also know that infrared sauna is good for anyone and everyone. So there's multiple modalities that they'll be able to utilize when they come to the ranch as well. And then you know, the counseling and the coaching and all that. And then the spiritual as aspects of this, you know, connecting to God through nature and and all the various things that we are already provide in what we're doing one-on-one -on -one with people. But how much better would it be if we could actually have people not be distracted instead of trying to do what we're doing right now, have them come to a ranch and let's say, can you commit to three months to living on site, in community, learning how to live, and then also taking advantage of what we're going to provide you. So three months, six months, some people will need a whole year of this kind of treatment. So that's our goal. What would, uh, what would they do once they leave? I mean, you would assume they'd be in a much better place and so they could actually um, live out their life you know, free of this, this grasp of trauma and addiction that they've been, you know, caught between like a vice for so long. But then we're going back to this, um, we're going back to this, uh, this threat of relapse, right? Like, right. I mean, I, I would have to think at, you have to kind of, uh, predict that there's going to be some fallout. Right. Like, you, you know, I, in almost no situation is there ever like a hundred percent success rate, no matter how mm. good it might be. You're looking for right. like a law of statistical averages here. If you can, you know, in statistics, if you can get 90% success, that is just about perfection statistically. Um, so is, how would you prepare people to actually re-enter life beyond the ranch? Yeah. And see, this is part of what we've been doing all the, mm -hmm. you know, since we moved here, and that is connecting with other organizations mm -hmm. and other people that the second phase or the second step of their journey would be, okay, if you don't have a family to go back home to, or you don't right. have a situation that's going to be healthy for you, here's where you can get into transitional housing. Right? right. And then if they're going to be here in the state of Florida, in our area, we would have our doors open for them to come back and just continue like some aftercare while they're living in a different environment. So mm -hmm. that's our plan. So we have made some connections with, you know, some other organizations and ministries here that we think would be perfect to network with. And the same thing is true with people out there that are doing other things. They can send people to us. So it's like right. what they're doing is only taking people so far. So here's the next step. So they come to Aruka Ranch. They do the work there. Then, okay, we transition them over here.
And you're right. So, you you have to have some sort of af aftercare. Yeah. If yeah. you're going to see success, okay, we can't just, you know, you're going to come and stay with us for three to six months. You get all healthy. Everything's on track. And you just go back into the same environment. Or you have no idea where you're going at that point. Right. Yeah. Right. Does addiction ever really go away? Is it ever really recovered? I don't think so. And this is, this is my thought on that. Um, if you don't do root cause recovery, mm -hmm. you will simply switch your addiction. You may yeah. not necessarily go back to alcohol, but you can even do socially acceptable addiction. Maybe you'll become a workaholic or yeah. whatever it may be, right? You're still running from something. Stop running. So addicts are running. That's part of what they're doing. So if we can get them to stop, get the healing, then okay. And I do believe, though, that there are invisible lines that we cross. And once you've crossed that invisible line, that means, so for, al you know, alcohol is an example. I can never go back to being a social drinker. That's, that's not an option for me. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I don't need it. Because mm -hmm. I can have I can have a blast and not worry about, you know, the next yeah. day, you know, what I did the night before. I mean, I enjoy my life today. I love my life. I wouldn't trade my sobriety for anything. Now, I couldn't say that in the beginning because isn't that what everybody else is doing? And I feel like yeah. I'm, you know, a fish out of water, right? Um, but once you embrace it and you embrace your life without it, it's like, man, I don't ever want to go back. No. no. So that's not an option for me anymore. And that's okay. I'm good with that. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned um, switching addictions here because that was actually was a question I was going to ask you here is like, is there really, is there anything such as a good addiction like workaholism, um, which can be, can be in some ways a good addiction and can make you tremendously productive. Um, kind of wondering like what do, when does it actually qualify as an actual addiction is it just like is it just compulsive behavior or is it is there a threshold that you have to cross where the behavior starts being destructive to yeah. either you or the people around you is that when it's actually called an addiction and then it has to be you know you can by that definition you can kind of apply it to anything you can comply uh, apply um competitiveness as an addiction you know, we know that there are people out there who are addicted to competition, addicted to adrenaline and stuff like that. They've, they're some of our best athletes we've ever had, um, a.k.a. Michael Jordan. He admitted it. You know, he admitted it. it's like I have a competition problem. I just want to crush everybody at everything. Right. That's that's me. And, you know, that made him Michael Jordan. That made him the killer that he was on the court. But it probably did cost him in a lot of other ways, wouldn't you think? Exactly. And I love how you described it because that's it. There's compulsivity and then there's there's destructive things that come as a result. It doesn't necessarily mean that that destruction is on the personal's, you know, person's personal health and well-being. But what about the relationships around you? Who's being impacted and affected by your ongoing choice to do this thing or to partake in this thing. Mm -hmm. you know, where's the destruction? And then the compulsivity. 
And I think, you know, um, the other thing I think that people need to ask themselves is why they're doing what they're doing. You know, mm-hmm. why am I doing this so much? And it could it be possible that I'm running from my own thoughts, that I'm running from my feelings, that I'm running from my past. So we have to ask the why question. Why are you doing this? Why is that so valuable and important to you? Why is that a priority over everything else in your life? Mm-hmm. You have to dig deep. And, you know, it's sad to say, a lot of people don't want to dig deep. If they can get away with it and just live their life this way, this is what they know, and everybody else is whatever, they're just keep going to keep doing it. And I think they're settling for less than the best, which is being sober-minded <laughs> and not being consumed by activities or a substance. Yeah. So is, can addiction really be characterized as like you recognize that your addiction, you recognize your addictions, your compulsive behaviors, and now you have a full appreciation of its power. And it's not that you really, it's not that you really conquer it. It's just now you become aware of it, right? I mean, and that's really kind of what you go for. You become aware of it, so you kind of, you Stay away from the things that you know are going to amplify your addictions. You learn to recognize it. You know that it's always there. And you just kind of learn to co- coexist with it. You know, one doesn't dominate the other. It's just now a, a state of cohabitation, right? Or, or am I getting too am I getting too poetic about no, it? No, <laughs> that's really good. That's really good. Yeah. You should write that down. Yeah. So awareness. And then And then having other strategies in place for life, like having healthy coping mechanisms that aren't necessarily in that camp that you've discovered, you know, is not, you know, that's not, that's not okay. And it's kind of, um, I think recovery is kind of cyclical too, because I Mm. I deal with a lot of um, codependence. People have, you know, those tendencies and that can be an addiction too, addiction to relationships and, you know, and you don't, you don't learn how to be not getting enmeshed with people and not enabling. And so part of the way that I explain it is, you know, when you're in recovery and you're really learning all this and like your, your whole concept of being self-aware is what really made me think of this is like, you know, now that you've discovered this and you know this about yourself, you know what it feels like, you know what it looks like, you know what the experience is like, and you get into another codependent relationship, you won't be in it for too long. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, this is all too familiar. And so you kind of, you regress, but then you realize it. And you begin to adjust and you change. And so then you go forward again. You go a little bit further forward. And then you may cycle back again. And then you go a little bit more forward. So that's probably more in the behavior side of addictions, more so Mm -hmm. than using a substance. But it's kind of cyclical. You might go back, but then you can go much further forward the next time because you've learned some lessons. It's you're more aware. 
I'm curious, given how broad this whole thing can be of addiction, do you think there's anyone out there who doesn't have an addiction? Um, I think that everyone does, but I do believe that those addictions can be broken. I think most people are either in denial or they're totally not aware of this whole concept that you and I are sitting here talking about today. So they have the addictions and either they're not willing to give them up or they're socially acceptable or they basically minimize them. So Mm -hmm. are they pretty much addicted to something? Yeah, probably. But can you break those off? Yes, you can. And when I, again, when alcohol brought me to my knees, alcohol brought me to the end of myself and I realized I need help, really. Um, But once I got into recovery, I realized I had all these other addictions. And so it was kind of like this process of, okay, let's deal with that one. All right, next. Let's deal with that one. Okay, next. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you today, I don't have any addictions. I really don't. But it took a lot of work and effort uh, and really digging deep, you know, and letting those roots be dealt with. And uh, I, I have to tell you today, I'm not addicted to anything. I'm not. Thank God. Thank the world we live in makes addictions just that so much easier to really fall into. Um, I mean, I'm sitting here right now. I'm thinking I'm, I'm probably addicted to screens. Probably am on my phone all the time. I mean, I do other things too. Um, but and I, I realize that, you know, I, if I'm on like Facebook or something, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm sitting here scrolling. I've been doing this for 15 minutes. I've wasted 15 minutes just kind of scrolling and looking at random crap. Um, so yeah, it's just like, Unfortunately, a lot of our technologies really kind of have connected to that (laughs) dopamine receptor in our brain. And now it's just kind of spiraling completely out of control in in ways I don't think anyone 30 years ago, I know no one 30 years or maybe even 10 years ago could have predicted. I agree with you. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading on that subject and it's huge right now. Maybe they did predict it, and that was the model. Wow. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like and those uh, those guys of the, uh, the the cigarette companies who put all these additives in it to make it more addictive, right? That's right. I tell people that all the time. Like when we do like our our health and wellness uh, seminars and classes, it's like they're doing the same thing with the food. You know, Franken food, the fast food, whatever you want to call that food, it's not food, it's chemicals. And what is it? It's highly addictive. Do you think that they don't know that that's addictive? Just the same as when they made cigarettes, they knew. And what is that about? They get repeat customers, right? right. Mm-hmm. Highly addictive. So it's like, oh, yeah. So did they know this about technology and all the screens and all that? Probably. 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 Yeah, yeah. So I find it really hard to imagine that they didn't. But um, so when do you when do you predict that Aruka Ranch will actually open its doors to the public? 
Well, we're going to hopefully be able to do this in phases, and I would love to see something happen next year, early next year, or mm-hmm. midsummer at the latest. Uh, we, like right. I said, we are looking at properties. We actually found a 20-acre property in Arcadia, Florida that we're looking at right now. Um, so it's just a matter of getting those investors on board and making it happen, and we would move on the property, and we have other people that are willing to move on the property as well and kind of get things going. And uh, we have some ideas about uh, the community living spaces, looking at cargo houses. Have you seen the cargo box houses? I think I have, yeah. Pretty amazing. And you've probably seen Mm -hmm. tiny homes, right? But we want them to be able to have space where it's more community because we want them cooking meals together and really learning to do this lifestyle so that when they leave, they're, they're prepared. Um, so hopefully we would love to see us, you know, be able to secure a property, move on the property and be there next year and begin the whole process of getting those homes built. And if nothing else, we will do like the come and go kind of, a, um, people can still come to the ranch. They just won't be able to actually stay in those community living spaces right away. So it'll be in phases, but that's, that's what we're hoping for. Do you have plans to like uh, take it to other States as well? Yes. You know what? This is okay. I have this guy who's really has the business mind behind all of this. And when we presented this whole concept to him, he's like, oh, my goodness. I mean, he went he was off and running with it. This could be a template and it could be a template for the world. You know, we could have Aruka ranches all over the world and helping thousands of people. And I'm like, I agree. It is so needed. So let's get this thing going here. If anybody wants to support us and help us, hey, contact us. We'd love to talk, you know. Yeah, I'll put the uh, website in the show notes. Okay, so people can, wonderful. People can get yeah, no problem. Well, Lillian, uh, we have a closing tradition on this podcast okay. where the get, where the guest uh, gives the final word. So if you could leave people listening with one thing to remember and one thing only, what would you say it would be? Okay, I guess I would say don't settle for anything less than God's best. For your life. Your life has purpose and meaning. And stop looking for everything in all the wrong places. Take the time to do the inside look and take advantage of what's available to you. There's help available. So there you go. Parting words, everyone. Okay. Well, Lillian, thanks so much for showing up. Appreciate the conversation. Yeah, appreciate it too. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And and the insights. I like uh I like a lot of what you said. I think it's I think it's helpful and needed. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks everyone who has listened. Thanks for everyone whoever will listen. I'll catch you next time. Peace out.